Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Ben Gideon. And I'm Rahul Ravi Pudi. How, how's life in Los Angeles, Rahul? What's the, what are the new developments on your end? The new developments are that the stadiums are wide open. I was at the Chargers game, SoFi Stadium on Sunday, and that place was 70,000 packed, and it was really cool to see things actually starting to get a little bit back to normal. Courtrooms are opening up, which is also a really good thing, so... And uh, you're not going to believe this, Ben, but it's going to be blue skies and sunny today. So how's <laughs> it over there in Maine? Uh, cold and raining today, but it's been it's we've had a nice fall so far. Um, and then on that note of courtrooms opening up, I just finally, although I've had this idea now for about a year and a half, filed a motion in, in the next case I have scheduled for trial, arguing that it's a uh, violation of my client's constitutional rights under the Seventh Amendment to continue to delay civil jury trials. Our state has not had one since COVID began. And there's actually some pretty good case law on that. So if anybody's interested, I'm happy to share that, that briefing. Today's episode of the Elevate podcast is being brought to you by the Expert Institute. There isn't anything more important to your case than finding the right experts, and there's no better place to find those experts than the Expert Institute. The Expert Institute has a whole team of people that will work with you to perform an individualized search for experts for each specialty you need for each case. And they'll keep looking until they find an expert that you're satisfied with. Go to theexpertinstitute.com and check them out today. Our episode is also being sponsored by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is the case management software solution that we use in my law firm to handle a wide variety of personal injury and complex medical malpractice cases. We love it. It's got forms. It's got work plans. It's cloud-based. And it allows us to track every case from beginning to end and the finances of our firm as well. Check them out at smartadvocate.com. Our show today is also sponsored by Hype Legal. Hype Legal provides digital marketing, internet and web-based design services for the high end of the trial bar. Every time I check them out, they've launched another firm's website. There's some really great sites, really cool stuff they're working on over there. If you've got a website that feels stale and old, you're looking for something new or you're just starting out, I would encourage you to check them out at hypelegal, H-Y-P-E, legal.com. This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Ravi Pudi. Really excited for our show today. We have uh, Michael Cowan. The whole reason we even have a show is because of Michael Cowan, because I got interested in trial lawyer podcasts from listening to his, which has been on on the air since about 2018. I can't say I've listened to every episode, but nearly every episode. So I feel like I know you, Michael, even though we've never uh, actually met before today. So welcome. And not only is Michael a, a podcaster, but he's a highly successful trial lawyer hailing from San Antonio. Uh, he's tried over 100 civil jury trials with some great results. Uh, he's particularly well known for trucking and for product liability litigation. So I'm interested in both of those topics. So hopefully we can get into that. 
But I also noticed that you uh, started your career clerking for a judge on the Fifth Circuit and then working for a white shoe firm in New York, um, which is kind of interesting because that's similar to how I started my career. I, I did a clerkship for a judge on the First Circuit and then started for working for a big corporate firm in New York City. So I'm kind of interested. You, you and I have kind of gone a path that is fair, somewhat rare in, in the world of um, l lawyers. Um, how did you go from Fifth Circuit clerkship, uh, big corporate white shoe law firm in New York City to trying cases for real human beings uh, out of Texas? Well, a couple things. I, I think the, the biggest thing is that I was in love. So I worked, uh, I'm from a little town called Brownsville, Texas. I guess not that little anymore. It was little when I grew up on the Mexican-American border, uh, as far south in Texas as you can get. And when I clerked on the Fifth Circuit, my judge, uh, Ronaldo Garza, his chambers were in Brownsville. Now, we would go to New Orleans for oral argument, but the day-to-day -day work was in Brownsville. And about six weeks before I left to New York, I started talking to the woman who's now my wife. Uh, and we continued talking when I was in New York. And, you know, she would, luckily she had a friend in New Jersey because she had very, very strict parents. She still lived with her parents, even though she was 20-something years old. Um, so she would go visit her friend in New Jersey, and I'd be able to see her, and we'd be able to go out, or I'd go down to Brownsville and visit. Uh, and so I was in love, and I was looking to move back because I didn't think she would ever move to New York. I actually, this sounds weird, I actually loved working at the big firm in New York. I mean, all I did was work. Um, but I didn't know anyone in New York other than my roommate uh, who I went to law school with. And so, you know, I'd get up in the morning, I would go to work, my friends were all at work. We'd all have dinner together at work because if you worked past 8.30, you could build the dinner to the firm. Um, and so um, that was my life, and I actually liked it. Um, but long term, I knew it also it wasn't what I wanted to do because they didn't ever try cases, uh, ever. And I really wanted to try cases. And so I wanted to go back home. There was an insurance defense firm where a friend of mine worked, and they were recruiting me to come back home and work for them. Uh, and I called a federal magistrate judge who I knew and I got close to while I knew him from before because I went to school with his daughter. Uh, but then I got to know him really well when I was clerking uh, just because we were in the same courthouse and we'd go have lunch. I'd go talk to him. And he told me, well, you know, that, sh that firm you're talking to is fine. Here's a other couple of the defense firms you're talking to. And I know what's going on in the federal courts, but for state court, you should call my friend Ed Stapleton. He's a plaintiff's lawyer, but, but he knows more about, you know, who's doing good, good work in the state courts. And I said, well, that's fine. I've only met Mr. Stapleton once or twice in my life. you mind calling him first uh, before uh, I call him? He goes, no, not a problem. So I call. I remember I call Ed. He goes, well, Michael, those are all fine firms, but you should work for me instead. Now, I won't pay you as much money, but I'll teach you how to try a case, and those other people don't know how to try a case. He actually used the F word. But I will let you try cases, and no matter what they tell you, they're not really going to let you try cases. And I will send you to the Jerry Spence Trial Lawyers College, and you can't get in if you do defense work. And so, you know, I even though it was a substantial pay cut and substantially less money than working for the defense firms, I really thought maybe I should do this. And so, and I had worked uh, part-time during law school for some plaintiff's firms. And I really enjoyed not just the work, but the atmosphere more. You know, it's about getting it done. It's about winning. It's not so much about how many hours you put into something, but more about, you know, being creative and, and finding a way to win. And so I was kind of like, you know, God, what should I do? Should I stay here in New York? Because, you know, I've only been here you know, a little less than a year. It looks bad to leave. Should I go work on the defense side? Should I go do a, a plaintiff's side? And one of the things, and you probably remember this from working at a big New York law firm, it's not unusual for someone to come to your office about between 4 and 5 p.m., 
and say, this big project needs to be done by you know, 9.30, 10 a.m. tomorrow. Uh, get it done. And so the project that was given to me was there was a big class action going on, uh, and our firm was bidding to try to defend a Swiss bank. And what happened was prior to the Holocaust, uh, there were Jewish families that knew bad things were going on. They didn't know how bad it was, but they moved their money into Swiss bank accounts. And then, you know, unfortunately, you know, millions of them were killed. And then after the war, their family members went back to the Swiss banks and said, hey, we think our family member may have had, you know, money in your account. And they said, well, do you have a death certificate? They're like, well, they didn't give death certificates at Auschwitz. So, no, we don't. And they said, well, we can't tell you anything. And so there was a, a, a class action by the survivors and family members of the people that had money in the Swiss banks. And I was supposed to overnight, because the Swiss banks at one point moved the assets to the United States because they were worried about being invaded uh, during World War II. And so I had to research the New York abandoned property laws from when Hitler came to power to the present. And so I'm like, okay, God, I think you're telling me I'm on the wrong side. <laughs> So if if we're going against, you know, giving money back to the survivors of Holocaust victims, maybe I should go do plaintiff's work. And so that's an interesting story, because what drove me out of big law was uh, working on the Enron case. Oh, wow. We, we, we represented Arthur Anderson after the uh, firm had already gone defunct. So really, all it was was a pool of assets. And I felt, felt like spending my weekends representing money, you know wasn't really the the best use of of my time what 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 was it about you and your personality that made you think well i i i would like to try cases but not only that i i might be good at doing that growing up i didn't know a lot of lawyers i had two uncles that became lawyers but they lived in a different part of the state and at that point in time i wasn't that close to them i got close to them later but at that particular point in my life i wasn't that close to them i didn't know that lawyers did, that there were lawyers who didn't try cases when i decided to go to law school and then you know i did some mock trial stuff during law school it seemed enjoyable and then when we when i was clerking on the for a federal judge they would actually bring in the one of the district judge had a program where they would bring in high school kids and we would do the law clerks would do mock trials we would be the lawyers he'd be the judge and then the high school kids would be the witnesses you know and i liked it and so I just thought that's what you're supposed to do. But it wasn't really until I started trying cases that I really knew that I, that I loved it. Is that part of your personality, do you think, or just the enjoyment of the spotlight or love of the clients? Or what, what, what is it that you think makes you good at, at trying cases? Okay, what makes me good and what drives me to do it are probably two different things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, probably what initially drove me to do it was, I mean, honestly, confession time, probably ego, uh, wanting to show off. Uh, enjoying the fact somebody would actually have to listen to me and couldn't you know walk away or change the subject you know thinking I could be a badass uh, I think what's made me good is yeah caring about my clients caring about what's right and wrong uh, learning to slow down and trust the jury trusting the jury has been a, a huge one it's been the biggest the hardest thing for me to learn to do but it's been the biggest breakthrough because they're the only people in doing things so you might as well trust them okay if you go into trial fearful of the jury there's people on there that are going to screw me over. They have an agenda. They're not going to get it. You're going to subconsciously project that. So let's say, you know, I'm going to go try a case. And well, for example, I got a, a trial in a week and a half and my client's African-American. So if I go in there thinking people are going to be prejudiced against her, I mean, whether they are or not, if I go in there thinking that I probably have some bigots on this jury, I'm going to project that consciously or subconsciously. It's going to come out. The other thing is if I put on myself the obligation to win this case, okay, so I have to win this case. I don't have the power to win the case. I have the power to present a 
incredible presentation that has the maximum chance of winning. But the 12 jurors decide who's going to win that case, not me. And so since they're the only ones that have the power, if I want to be, if I don't trust them, the way I'm talking to them, uh, my tone of voice, just everything else is not going to be as persuasive. Because you, you sound desperate, you sound standoffish, you try too hard. But if I trust them, like you are good people, you're here because you want to do the right thing and I trust you to do it. So let me let me give you some things that you need or that you may be useful for you to do your job. It just comes across a lot better. And, and it's funny, when I stop accepting the responsibility of winning the case and realize the jury is responsible for doing justice, it's my job to give them the tools and guide them to do it. My win rate went up. It's 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 kind of funny how when I stopped worrying as much about I'm trying to figure out it, it's a little complicated to say it, it's I, it's not that I don't want to win I want to win badly and I work really hard but I don't hold the responsibility of winning on me that's on the jury it's on the jury if the jury gets it wrong that's on them it's not on me and since I've done that then I could be more in the moment in the courtroom and and my job is here I'm I'm here trying to help you I'm giving you what you need. And when I'm there, and then I'm focused just on the witness. I'm not focused on what's going to happen at the end of the trial. I'm focused on what I'm doing right now. Uh, and it's made trials more fun. And it is just, uh, I, for whatever reason, we're winning more cases and winning more money when we're doing it since I've done that. But it's a lot of work. Um, how do you balance the um, trusting the jury uh, mentality with making sure that you're framing your arguments to your audience? Well, to me, it's not that I'm framing my arguments for my audience. It's I, I have people that want to do the right thing. And so what I need to do is I need to give them what they need to do the right thing, which means explaining things in a clear manner, slowly enough, not so slow that I'm condescending, but slowly enough where they can actually hear it and understand it. Because I, I used to talk really fast because I wanted to get everything in because I have to make every possible argument. I've got to bring in every possible fact. Um, and so, you know, what is it, what it, you know, so what is it they need to do their job? Now, so it's not that I'm not saying, well, they'll figure it out. I'm still working on framing the arguments, telling the best story, but it's more of a, just a mental, the way I'm thinking of them is there's, these are smart people that want to do the right thing. If I give them what they need in a clear, coherent manner, they're going to do the right thing, if that makes any sense. I know you spend a lot of time thinking about uh, strategies for presenting cases to trial and obviously talking to great trial lawyers, learning uh, through Trial College, but also through the podcast. For for the listeners who are trying to aspire to do that themselves, can you talk about your process to get a case ready to trial? Try j- just all the nuts and bolts of the case, but also your own mindset so you get to the place where you are right now think, in, in the way you approach it. Well, the mindset takes a lot longer than the trial prep. There are probably people that might not have started off as screwed up as I was, so they may not have as much... Uh, as much work to do as I did. Uh, for me, reading books, meditating, honestly, it's a little embarrassing, but therapy, uh, getting past my own bullshit uh, so that, you know, if I'm worried about me and my insecurities, then I'm not being present for the jury. And if I trust the jury, I know it's not about me. So maybe I've gained some weight. Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk a little funny. Maybe I lost a trial and I'm getting a little insecure. Well, that's on me. That's not on them. They don't know that. Or they don't care. They don't care what you look like. They care about what your message is. Yeah, that's not saying you, you go to trial looking like crap. I mean, you, you know, you want to make your best presentation. Uh, so, I mean, part of it is just really working on yourself and, and trying to get past our own insecurities and our own issues so that we can be press, fully present for a jury. So that's part one. Part two is, you know, working up the case is really, can you drill down the story that's most important? Um, and so Michael Leeser, I got this from Michael Leeser, but I don't know if he got it from someone else, but I got it from him. And he has a two questions. 
yes, and, I, and it's part of what I do is like this case is in, is important because blank, and this case is simple because blank, and I try to find the two answers uh, to those questions. So you know, I've got a case I'm going to try hopefully in a week and a half. Although I say hopefully because we, I thought I was going to try it two or three times before, and the courts have chosen to to bump them. But you know, I have a, a client, uh, wonderful woman. She was the the charge nurse, which is the head nurse on the women's oncology floor at Methodist Hospital, which is one of the more prestigious hospitals in San Antonio, Texas. She goes to buy uh, some furniture at a store called Big Lots. They have her fill out the application. You have to sit in one place to fill out the application because the iPad where you're filling out is is physically tethered, where you can't you know you have to sit here. You can't take anywhere else. Behind there, they have a shelf. And they have overhanging heavy merchandise that actually hangs over the shelf. And their employee was messing with a box and knocks a, a big heavy box that had an office chair onto her, uh, causing a brain injury. So why is the case simple? Because you're not supposed to knock boxes onto people. I mean, don't drop heavy things on your customers. It's a simple case. Why is it important? Because if they can do this to her, they can do it to anybody. I mean, you know, so, you know before we get into all the brain injury science and you know pre-existing you know you know what's pre-existing what's here you know how do you get all these injuries from this just break it down to what's simple uh, you know we always if you have a corporate defendant which you don't always have um, then you know you want to do what I call a root cause analysis they call it the five whys to figure out why is it the company's fault if it is so you know say it's a rear-end collision you know why do you have a rear-end collision well because the driver didn't hit the brakes in time to avoid hitting the car in front of them now, why did that happen? It could be a, you know, a million different things they say in the case because the, the tractor-trailer driver was following too closely and he didn't have time to hit his, you know, to perceive, perceive, react, hit his brakes, and stop. Why would the driver be following too closely? Well, one reason could be is because the driver didn't know how to calculate following distance. Believe it or not, we have that happen all the time in tractor-trailer cases. We ask them and they don't get it right. Well, why in the world is someone driving a tractor-trailer on the same roads as my kids and my wife if they don't know how to calculate following distance because you had a trucking company that chose to put them on the road without training them and testing them to make sure that they did it without sending someone to drive with them to make sure they were doing it right. Um, and why would the company do that? Because they cared more about money than safety and they didn't want to invest the time and money and safety to do that. And so now we've got a story about the company and then, then we can start framing our story that way. It's just a tool. And I guess the third tool I try to use, I got this from a, a litigation strategist or trial consultant named Rodney Jew out in California, is uh, he calls it the hope dynamic. So what did the person love to do before? We can't just talk about what they're suffering now, but what do they love? Because to, to, to know what they lost, you have to know what they had. What are they left with now? And then the hard part is, what is the hope for the future? With the jury's help, how can we make their life a better? better? Uh, and then... We get that, and then we start looking at who's going to be our cast of characters. How are, we, how are we going to visually tell the story? So what did you love to do before? That's a great question. You get all those things. Well, you know, I love to go to the park with my kids. I love to play basketball with my friends, whatever whatever it is. Who did you love doing it with? Who are the people who would be around you that would know, would see you, could talk about you doing this so that the story is not all on our client? And then do you have any pictures or even better video of you doing it? Uh, because, you know, when you put lay witnesses on you know these you know they have they get nervous uh and but somehow if you're just talking to jury it's hard but if you have well here's a picture you know of you and your husband on a ski lift what's that about you know oh yeah and all of a sudden the client lights up or you know this was the client's wife 
yeah, this one time we went on a trip. It was a summer. We went to the mountains. I can't believe that we did this and he did this. And we went and hiked up and down the mountain and stuff like that. And, and you give this now vivid story because now she's in their living room showing pictures to her friends instead of being in a courtroom trying to tell a story to a jury. And then we got this really vivid picture of the before. And then you're like, well, what's it like afterwards? Could he do that? No. You know, we tried. He went on vacation and, you know, we went just a little bit and he started hurting so bad, you know, we had to give up on it, you know, whatever it is, or, or he pushed through it and I could see the pain on his face and he spent the next two days in bed, whatever the story is. But discovering those stories and then finding the visuals, because people learn so much better when you can find visuals. Uh, and you have to start that at the beginning, again, you know, right before the case, right before trials, the wrong time to do that. Uh, so we've actually made that part of our process is that we ask these questions at the beginning on the first client meeting. You know, if it's a case that looks like one that, that's a, a more serious case. So what did you love to do before? And we we, we, we tasked the client with starting to get pictures because they don't get it at first. Like, well, I don't have any pictures of my injuries. No, we want pictures of what you did before. And you start getting them and when you start talking to them about how you're going to use them. And then they'll start thinking, oh, well, I got this. Oh, well, someone else has this picture. And then when we do our monthly calls with them, oh, by the way, do you have any other pictures that would show this? And then we sometimes end up with three, 400 pictures by the time we get to trial or videos and it's great. And then we get to pick the best ones and, and really tell the story. So I, I love that description of your process um, and, and talking about going back to getting your mind set right. If folks go back and listen to our first show with Rick Friedman. He, he talks a lot about that in his recent book and very honestly describes the the therapy kind of road that he went through to get himself to to the mindset that that was required to be successful at trying cases um and i really like the way you have broken down some of the elements of a trial because it can be so daunting for people when they start out what do i do first what do i do second and one of the things i'm so impressed about by you and the way you approach this it seems like in your practice in general is that you've developed a lot of uh, processes and systems that help you always have you know kind of a high quality consistent approach to the cases you do and the, the cases you try can you talk a little bit about how you've developed your internal uh, systems in your office sure it's it's a lot of it's been trial and error over many years uh, I it's funny when I first got started doing this kind of work I really resisted systems because I'm like you know where this is art and then you know where the people's lawyers were not like the corporations um, and we're not going to do things in a cookie cutter manner and then what I realized is when you have systems in place to do the the little things you can really focus all your energy on doing the big creative things. Uh, and so I think I started off, I read a book called The E-Myth Revisited. I, actually, I read that. Michael That's Gerber. a good book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, started off with some systems. And my first systems were, you know, making sure that our discovery gets answered and having like model discovery answers for our model discovery objections. Uh, you know, making sure in, in some counties in Texas, you have to request a trial date. So making sure, you know, within a day or two of getting the defendant's original answer, we request a trial date. So the case has pressure and gets movement uh, requesting deposition dates for certain people as soon as we get an answer you know just so the case gets moving and then i've gone back and forth i've had systems that were way too detailed and people had too many reminders and um it was it was uh, taking creativity away and it was people were just spending all day checking boxes uh and then i've had a lack of systems i've worked with consultants from different companies uh, you know i've gotten some some good from vista 
which is a company that works with plaintiff lawyers. Uh, got some good from Emith. I worked with them with one of their consultants. There's lots of other people, and but you got to take them all and get what you can from them. But also realize none of them are going to be perfect either, and you have to do what works for your firm. Uh, and then the biggest thing for me is I would develop these great systems, and they look great on paper, and then we wouldn't enforce them, and I get too busy doing something else, and then people wouldn't follow the system after a while or I wouldn't follow the system after a while because I'd forget about it and I'd you know start working on something else. And so uh, there's a book that I was told to read uh, that changed, one of the books that changed my career for the business side, it's called The Four Disciplines of Execution. Um, and what that thing is, you know, with uh, we call it 40X, Four Disciplines of Execution, is you pick one big thing to work on. And so we started, because I had to, because we, we had a bit of a breakup at the firm and uh, we had some financial issues that the, the problems that led to the ba- the breakup also led to a cash an impending cash shortfall. So we had a big, wildly important goal. I think is what they call it, the wig, of increasing our cash flow at the law firm without settling cases cheap. And so we got the group together because you need to get buy-in. And we all said, okay, if we're going to get our cash flow up, what are the things we can do other than settling a case cheap? that increase the value and get someone to settle it. And the funny thing is, was all the things that I had, was trying to enforce in my processes, getting your lawsuit on file, getting a trial date, getting the basic depositions done. You know, uh, we just had a list of things. And so sending, actually sending the man, setting a mediation. Um, and so every week we meet and we publicly say whether we did our commitment from the last week. And then we all commit to do one to three things that are going to move us towards that goal. Uh, and, and it just kind of that public, and then we publicly go over, we have other certain other metrics of things that are part of our systems, like you have to do uh, a somewhat detailed file review, not just looking at your file, but actually going over certain things once a month. Uh, you have to do a client contact, with, which isn't just talking to the client, but, you know, it doesn't have to be the lawyer, but someone on the team has to go over certain things with the client, you know, how are you doing, Here, here's what's going on in your case, how are you, you know, what symptoms are you having now? Are you still in treatment? Do you need any help getting in treatment? You know, any more photos or videos you have for us, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that has to be documented. So we, we go over, Hey, you got three cases where you haven't done this. What's your plan? And we do it publicly uh, and we do it uh, in front of each other, but we do it in a way uh, that's positive, not negative. We're not like just totally ragging on people. It's more of like, we're a team, we're trying to succeed. And I will tell you that turned our firm around. It, it really, uh, you know, cases started settling in a shorter period of time for larger amounts of money. And uh, we all seem happier. We're like on the, all on the same page. So one of the things you mentioned was Rodney Jew and earlier the uh, Spence Trial College. It sounds like you've gotten some pretty awesome exposure to uh, different approaches to trial strategies. Um, are there any others and what was your favorite? Oh boy. I, I, the book that changed my life uh, was Carl Benninger's 12 Heroes, One Voice. So, I'm sorry, 12 Heroes, One Jury, I think is what it was. Or, uh, but Carl Benninger's book changed my approach because that's where I had the start of the mind shift of, in our trial, I always thought I had to be the hero of the story. I had to save the day. I had to go there and be so brilliant and so persuasive that, you know, I'm going to convince these 12 people to do something. And obviously people who are getting much better verdicts than me must have had something that I didn't have. Uh, and that's why they got these because they had some magic. They were the true superheroes. And what Carl's book taught me was the jurors are the heroes of the story. Uh, and so I need to give it up to them and trust them to do it. And it just changed my life. And, you know, trying to do the stuff. So that one's really good. I mean, I could name so many people. Sari Delamotte, uh, who's, uh, she's 
specializes in nonverbal communication, but she also, I've worked with her a lot. I did uh, like a private coaching with her for a couple of years and she changed my life too. She, for the better, uh, both on communication skills. I've, she's really opened me up, relaxed, really got me in the nonverbals and, and kind of teaching me, you know, different kind of body movements to make, to do different things, uh, to have changes in energy flow. So sometimes you're going to be more excited. You're going to talk louder. Sometimes you're going to slow it down. You know, when are you trying to get people to, to think about questions? When are you trying to be authoritative and get people to listen to you? And, and that, that plus the, I really worked on the trusting the jurors on the, I'm, I'm good enough, and but it's not my job anyway. It's a juror's job. My job's to fight. It's a juror's job to decide the case. So it's not. I don't have to be a great lawyer to get a great verdict. I just have to have a great story, and 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 the jurors have to be great jurors to have a great verdict. Uh, and it, it's funny, but but taking that pressure off me lets me do better. It's kind of like an athlete. If you're so scared about winning and losing, you're going to mess everything up. But if you just get in the flow and you focus on the next play and what I'm doing, then it just all starts flowing. And the same thing happens in trial when you just get there and you're present and you're trying the case. So yeah, sorry. I've done, before sorry, I did work with Josh Carton. Um, he helped me a lot uh, on the nonverbals. He also helped me on a big mindset thing, and it was really painful. And and if you want to work with Josh, he will. I promise you, he will not do this to you if you're not ready for it. Uh, and I had worked with him on and off. I mean, I knew him through the trial lawyers college, and we had hired him to do some things with our firm. Uh, I'd probably known him for almost 20 years when he did this to me and it, it's still traumatizing, but I had a huge case coming up and it was the biggest case I ever had, the most money I ever had in it. And it looked like it was likely to go to trial. Uh, and so, you know, he wanted to know, well, what are your fears? What are your insecurities? I'm like, well, the jurors might think I'm greedy. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not attractive enough. Well, I'm fat and people are, aren't going to like fat people. And so he picked, <laughs> this is awful. He picked one person for every insecurity. So I had the people in front of me, the practice jurors, and then behind me I had one person yelling, you're fat, no one likes you. Someone else saying, you're just greedy and you don't care about anyone. No one should ever do anything for your client. I, you know, every, And so they were screaming these things in my ear, and I had to tune them out and give an opening statement. Uh, and then you know, I finally got to where I could give the opening statement. And after I was supposed to go have drinks and dinner with everybody, I'm like, yeah, you guys go. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to process. I, I slept. Um, and, you know, but it changed me. After that, I really learned to tune things out, to tune out those internal, sorry, Delamont calls it the saboteur, the, the internal voice is telling you you're not good enough, that you can't do this, that there's some reason it's going to fail, and just focus on, on the work in front of me. Wow, that's actually quite insane. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, <laughs> but it I works. could see how it might be, I could see how that might be effective. And, and probably most of your listeners aren't as screwed up as I started, and so they may not have as, as painful of a journey to get there. Well, I mean, I think it takes a lot of strength to confront those things and take them on and to try to get better. What, how, I mean, I think everybody has those those insecurities and worries, but very few people take the steps that you have to really address them head on like you have. What, what is it about you th that you think you were able to do that? Uh, several things. One, I need to thank, even though I've never met him in person, Rick Friedman and then Jerry Spence, uh, because they went before me and they both publicly said, I did therapy and you should too type thing to get better. You know, Jerry Spence is talking about, you know, you need to dig, do an archaeological dig on yourself to get past your own problems. And so you know, one, I had those role models. Okay, there's people that have the success that I want to have and this is what they did. I think the other is just, I got tired of being unhappy. I got tired of, you know, I, I found a pattern in my life that every time 
I did, I achieved a big goal. You know, so I was like, I want to get my first million dollar case. I want to get my first $10 million case. I want to run a marathon. Um, I would be super happy and engaged working towards the goal. And when I met it, within a month, I would have deep depression. And what I finally realized is I had this illusion that if I sacrifice everything and work towards this goal, you know, like if I just could settle a million dollar case, my life would change. If I could just get a verdict over a million dollars, my life would change. If I can settle a case for over 10 million, my life will change. Well, guess what? It doesn't. You may have more money, but your life isn't. Whatever little issues you had in your life before are still there. Your marriage is going to have the same issues it had before, whether you have a bigger bank account or not. Your, your relationship with your parents, with your children, with your friends, your insecurities, they don't change. Uh, and so it's like, I can either continue this pattern or I can break it. Um, and I think this year is actually the first year that I have like worked on and we almost tried it resolved like 10, 11 something at night on the Saturday before we're going to pick a jury. Uh, this is the first time that I've actually worked up and resolved a mega case without getting depressed afterwards. As weird as that sounds, like I felt good about it. Uh, and and even learning to enjoy my success without guilt, I mean, is is uh, been something I've had to work on. But I just realized, one, I'm not going to get to where I want to be success-wise if I don't get past these things. But two, what's the point of having the success if you can't enjoy it? Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I love that because it gives hope for the rest of us. So why don't we take 60 seconds and we'll be right back with more of Michael Cowan. I'd like to take a brief break now to thank our sponsors again, Smart Advocate, award-winning case management software for trial lawyers, Hype Legal, full services, digital marketing and web design with a premium on beautiful design and aesthetics for the high end of the trial bar and for Expert Institute, the place to go to get the best experts to help you win your case. You can check out all of our sponsors on our website at elevate.fm. That's E-L-A-W-V-A-T-E dot F-M. I'm going to be honest. I am thoroughly enjoying listening to you, Michael. It's um, I'm learning a lot. And I've, and I've actually got a, this is an ongoing complaint I've had since we've started this podcast. Uh, I've now ordered two new books and I've never read more than I've read uh, since we started this podcast because of all these awesome book recommendations everybody's giving. Oh, I'll, I'll have more if you, if you let me. <laughs> oh no, oh, my goodness. I'm almost afraid to ask. <laughs> it's fantastic. If you have a law firm, uh, you also need to get everything by Patrick Lencioni, L-E-N-C-I-O-N-I. That's the other we've been working on on his stuff the last couple of years that's been the other thing that you know, it's not so much as for an individual lawyer but for an organization he focuses on what you what's called what he calls organizational health so instead of just on the processes but focusing on the people how do you get everyone one enjoying their job passionate about their job all working towards the same thing and it's been a lot of work but it's also been uh, one incredibly effective uh, I mean we're working better but it's also made working a lot more enjoyable because we're all on the same page because we're communicating. We have a lot more transparency. We're communicating honestly. I'm learning to have difficult conversations when issues are little instead of waiting till they blow up and they're big and catastrophic. Um, and his stuff has also been uh, so. I, I would start with like the five dysfunctions of a team uh, would be a, a good one uh, to start with. But his his things have been totally game changing for me too. And on that note, can you just talk a little bit about your team and how you put it together? And I know you have a lot of your uh, partners or, or guests on, on the podcast as well, but it sounds like you've put together a really fantastic team of people that have 
uh, different strengths? I have, and it's 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 trial and error, honestly, over the years. But I've been lucky enough to develop great people. Uh, the other than Sonia Rodriguez, uh, who who joined us as an experienced lawyer, I mean, usually the best ones are the ones that start off without a lot of experience in the field and and come in and over the years learn the method. Uh, you know, Mallory Peacock, who's you know my my protege, and she's the one that I, when I'm gone, I'm hoping is going to continue running this firm and and building it to something even better. Uh, I mean, she's brilliant, but when she started, she was a year at law school, had never done a personal injury case, never taken a deposition, and you know we, we were just able to build her up. And uh, but I think one of the things that makes Mallory and I work together so well is our strengths are opposite. So like Mallory is very organized. Like Mallory is the only person I know she'll make a to-do list with eight things to do today. And at the end of the day, she's done all eight of them. Uh, whereas I'm very much like, what's my next idea? I, like, I, I will go from big idea to big idea to big idea and never finish anything. You're the visionary. And it's why I've, I've got a, a trial guides book that's a year and three months past due right now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's never good enough. And I get, keep getting other projects I take on. And Whereas, you know, Mallory, I mean, brilliant lawyer, but she's also one who gets things done. And she, you know, and she's also better. She's better than I am at, you know, I'm I'm still not a great delegator. I'm getting a lot better at it. But like one of the realizations I just kept, you know, I'm working with five different lawyer teams at, at the firm, the, you know, the way we're, we're organized. And I always feel like I got to do my part. And so like, well, you do this on a case and I'll do this. You do this on a case and I do this. Well, if I'm trying to do half the work with five different teams, I'm doing the work of five lawyers. It took me, a, believe it or not, a long time to figure that out. Um, so, but I think the, so putting, finding the right people is really important. Um, so we went through a process that, that Lincioni reckon, that recommended in this book. So I created an actual leadership team, and it's lawyers and non-lawyers. So we have Sonia, my, my partner Sonia Mallory, and myself, and then we have Teresa, who is our office manager, and Delisi, who is marketing and intake manager. Uh, and we we got together and we did like a two-day retreat with just us, and you know we answered six, I think it's six questions. First one is you know why do we exist, and you know. And they all have to be real too. They can't just be some aspirational thing that where you want to be. So why do we exist? You know, we we finally figured out we want to be really we want to do a really good job, hopefully a better job than anybody else, or at least as good a job as any other elite firm. So our law firm exists to provide a special forces level representation to people who are hurt. I mean, you know, we just uh, special forces is kind of what we came up with. Who goes in there and does the really good? You know, goes in there tactical strikes. You know, how do we behave? And that was really fun because what he had us do is. We listed like who are our very best employees, and we we got a whiteboard and we listed our very best employees that we've that we've had over the last three years. Then who are the people that made the firm better by leaving? And so basically listed the very worst people we've had. So we listed all the characteristics of the best employees and all the reasons why the worst employees were the worst, and use that to figure out now what are our true core values that make us that, that make us good, but also are real. You know your. Because like you're, you know, we you have what's called an aspirational value. That's where we want to be, but that's not where we are now. Uh, so if you want to be perfect, but you're not. And so our three core values, when we we boiled it down, where we constantly seek to learn and improve. You know, reading the books, going to seminars, trying new things. We share what we learn. Actually, sharing not just within the firm, but outside the firm is actually one of our core values. It's why we do the podcast, why I speak, and not only why I speak, but I actually tell them my speech isn't. Uh, this stuff is real complicated, so you need to refer it to me. And my speech is actually going to be, this is what I know, and this is how you can do it yourself. And then we fight hard without being assholes. Because we want to be hard fighting, but we don't want to be jerks, you know, uh, about it. And so, and then we went, what are our strategies for success, you know. And he always makes you do three. So, you know, we we, we need to uh, develop a support and elite team, which is what we 
we got a better training program. We do a lot more training than we ever did. We do weekly trainings for lawyers and paralegals, uh, weekly lunch and learns for all the non-lawyer and paralegals. Uh, we attract the right cases, focus on attorney referrals because that is our business model is attorney referrals. And then we maximize the value of every case. And so, you know, when you have those three things, and then you develop all your other systems, all, all your other programs around those three things. And then you find out what metrics do we need to measure those three things. And it's been great. Uh, and then Lencioni also has his, uh, it's kind of like a pyramid. Like what makes something dysfunctional is, you know, you don't have what he calls vulnerability-based trust. You don't have trust that you can really say what you think to your coworkers. As a result, you don't have conflict. If, if everyone just kind of goes with what the boss says uh, and you never have any disagreements, then people don't have any buy-in. So you don't have commitment. Then people don't hold each other accountable. And then you're not all kind of going the same way. So we, I, as the leader of the firm in, amongst my teams that I lead, I uh, have really worked hard to create an atmosphere where people are safe to say what they think. Um, and I encourage conflict of ideas, not conflict of you're a bad person you're dumb but michael i don't think that's a good idea i think this is a better way to do things or i think you're making a mistake uh, uh and sonia rodriguez has been really great i mean she she'll tell me like why are you doing that that's not a good idea but she's not telling me that but it's because of the trust we have with each other i know that she's telling me that because we're on the same team and we want to make this place better she doesn't want me to make a mistake she's not saying michael you're dumb she's saying like why are we doing it can't we do this different or something bad's gonna happen when we do that and she also knows me well enough that I might hear her and say, no, I'm going to do it anyway, and this is why. Uh, but because of that, that we, we, we all have buy-in and we're all pushing towards the same goals. And I'm not saying it's nirvana. It's not always perfect, but it's really that purposeful effort in, in regular meetings and regularly sharing what we think about things and having so that we have the debate within the meeting instead of someone walking out saying, well, that's not going to work because of this reason has really turned the firm around. So I, I wanted to ask you some questions about the podcast. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about uh, you? You were definitely a um, front runner in getting into podcasting. I know it's really taken off in the last couple of years. It seems like everybody and their brother, including us, now have a podcast. But um, you you were in it before anybody else and saw value in it, and put, obviously put a lot of real uh, effort into making it great. And you certainly have the what I would consider to be the best trial lawyer podcast on the planet. So can you talk a little bit about uh, why you did that and how you built it out? Sure. Uh, it's funny because it started off on a lark. Uh, so there is a man named David Clark. He he wrote a book uh, that I read called Out There. He was not, not a law book, but he was a 300 and something pound alcoholic and drug addict that turned his life around and ran all these ultra marathons uh, like Leadville, which is 100 miles at you know, in the Colorado Rockies, Badwater, which is in the Death Valley during July. And Ra Raul's training for that. Oh, really? No, no, absolutely not. Uh, and, and, it, and it was it was inspirational. So I reached out to the author and, I, and we became friends. Um, and then I saw that my friend David, may rest in, he's since passed away, but uh, David was going to be on the, on the Stone Cold Steve Austin podcast. And when I was growing up as a kid who spent the first couple of years of his life and living in a trailer, professional wrestling was part of my childhood uh, and being a fan and so i'm like okay here's somebody i know that's going to be interviewed by someone i was a fan of when i was younger i didn't know what a podcast was but i gotta listen to it my friend david's going to be on there with stone cold steve austin so i downloaded it you know so now i have realized i have a podcast app on my phone never used it before and i said well this is pretty interesting i wonder if there's anything i could use 
because I was training for a marathon at the time, so I was doing these, you know, two-hour runs, like anything that I could do to in this trial law. And, you know, there were a few out there. Most of them, they would do four or five episodes, and they would stop, or they would be, you know, the Scott Glovsky has one, you know, for the Trial Lawyer Nation. I'm sorry, for Trial Lawyers College, but it's just Trial Lawyers College-specific things, and I've got a real complicated emotional relationship with trial lawyers college i used to be on the staff i'm not i still love them but long story but so i'm like that ah, there's nothing out there that really speaks to me there's that's what i want i wonder if i can do one so i just went to delisi friday who's our marketing director and said hey i think i want to do a podcast and she's like okay and i said but you know I'm, we need to do it consistently so you're gonna have to make me do it and you know I, luckily i've got some friends i think i've got enough friends that would do me a favor and be on it where we can get some good guests to start with um and then, you know, I just want you to promote it a little bit. You know, I'll give you a, a little budget to do some social media promotions, put a booth up at some trial lawyer conventions. And, uh, you know, I didn't I didn't know if anyone would ever listen to it. But my thought was, I'm going to get to go talk to people. I think my first recording was Joe Freed. Um, and then I got Josh Carton. We were working with Josh and Josh Carton agreed to do it. Um, and then I went to the AJ conference. Uh, I went to the AJ Winter conference that year. Uh, and uh, I said, okay. I looked at the speaker list. Well, who here like is a badass? Let me see if they'll do it. And like surprisingly, like lawyers like Randy McGinn, people like David Ball agreed to do it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't know. You know, I didn't know whether they do it or not. Um, and then somehow it just after a year or so it started taking off. And you know, I started running into people saying, oh, I listened to your podcast. And then I never looked. And then Lisi once said, oh, we just hit a thousand, you know, unique downloads an episode. We just hit two thousand. I think it's like. 3,500 or something like that now, which in the podcasting world is tiny, but in the trial lawyer world, I don't know. I still thought, you know, when it was like 800 to 1,000. I'm like, man, you know, I'm doing all this work. It's not that many people listening. And I was talking to friend Steve Gersten. We we're in AJ conference. He goes, well, let me ask you this, Mike. You flew here to speak of this thing. Yep. Yeah. And you're paying your own flight. You're paying your own hotel, your own meals. Yeah. How many people are going to be in the audience? I don't know, 80 to 120. Okay. And then for for free you're speaking to how many more people every week and so i don't know so it's really been a labor of love um but it just kind of organically took off from there so i wanted to ask maybe you could compare it against my own uh, impressions but uh who are your top let's say three favorite guests you've had on your show oh my gosh just to put you on the spot. You have put me on the spot. I'll tell you some of mine. I, I really enjoyed the Michael Watts episode. Okay. Um, he would. Uh, I've gotten to know him a little bit since, but it was just such a remarkable story about how he was targeted and prosecuted um, down there in uh, Texas and um, really compelling. Um I, I think uh, Rex Paris is always very good and entertaining. I really enjoyed him. Um, there's many others, but uh, those are two that stand out in my mind. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just curious. What... Let me think. You know, the funny thing is I have the conversation. My involvement in the podcast is I have a little, you know, I pick guests, and sometimes I have to reach out to them myself because a lot of times lawyers don't take communications from assistants and um, and I get it because we have so many people trying to market to us all the time. Uh, and then I do the interviews. So I, I do my interview prep and I do the interview. And then it goes to my team at the firm. We have Delisi and uh, who's our marketing director and Raul, who's our graphic artist, but also does our video and audio, audio editing. And they do all the rest. And so I kind of do them. I'm in the moment having the conversation. And it's just like any other conversation I've had with somebody. I don't really go back and re-listen to it because I've already had the conversation. So 
to me, it's more the, what kind of personal connection did I feel or what kind of inspiration did I feel having the conver- conversation. I think Randy McGinn, I felt like I needed to go back and become a better lawyer. I mean, she is just such a badass and, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. she has that effect on people. Yeah. And so she was really expir- inspirational. Joe Freed um, has just been such a good friend to me over the years. And I have just got such concrete things I've learned from Joe, just like little sayings like, how can they be 100% right and we still win? That's one of the things, other things I try to do in my cases, okay? The defense is saying these three things. Do I need to fight these three things or can I still win with these three things? You know, uh, and, you know, for example, in my case, I'm going to try in a week and a half. It's like, there's a big fight. Did the box hit her in the head or did it hit her in the neck? We can fight about that all day or we ask the experts, including their experts, can you get a brain injury if you get hit in the neck? Yes. So who cares? If you can get the injury head or neck then who cares whether it's head or neck give it to them you know and with the, before i learned that from joe i probably would have been fighting them in fact we have an expert that you know we may or may not call it trial who's going to talk about why it would have to be hit in the head <laughs> but we might not call that expert and just go yeah doesn't matter you can get hurt either way um so joe freed randy nick rowley was cool um, oh yeah that was a really great interview that one really felt good that. uh yep. there's some i don't want to slide anybody there's so many others uh yeah, they're all good. Um, well, we really appreciate having you on. Uh, you're kind of a hero to us since we've just <laughs> launched our podcast and we're trying to make a go of it. And it's been really fun. And I think we, we've had some great guests and some good success, but uh, not not at the level you have. Um, Give it time. <laughs> but yeah. But thank you so much for agreeing to do this. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're amazing, Michael. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure meeting you. Well, thank you for having me. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E.net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.